We're nearing, well, we are at the end, as I said, for this study of the book of Ruth, and today we're going to discover some unique lessons from Boaz and from Ruth that led to their marriage and their future together. You know, when Jan and I got married uh, 45 years ago, there must not have been much in the way of required pre-marriage counseling because we weren't asked to do any. Uh, Jan's father, who was then a pastor, and my home church pastor sat us down about 15 minutes before the rehearsal and attempted to impart some wisdom about marriage. Uh, I really don't remember much more than that, um, but for better or for worse, we've done life together now for four and a half decades. Recently, I read a story of a wise old man who took the groom aside during his wedding reception and smiling somewhat cryptically, he said, love is blind, but marriage is a can opener. Now, I'm still pondering a little bit what that uh, bit of wisdom is. Maybe you've heard that statement before. I just heard it recently for the first time, and I'm not at all sure what it means, nor am I against marriage. I'm just reporting what I read. We like to say that marriage is made in heaven, don't we? And it is in the sense that God established it for our benefit. But as Shakespeare noted, the course of true love never did run smooth. Suffice it to say, very little has run smoothly for Ruth in this whole story. As a little girl growing up in Moab, she could hardly have imagined that one day she would marry a Jewish man named Malon. Much less did she know that he would soon die, uh, and leaving her a widow among her own people. And not in her wildest dreams could she have foreseen moving to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, Naomi, a decision that meant leaving her people, leaving her homeland, and leaving her religion. And finally, she would never have expected to propose marriage to Boaz during a midnight rendezvous on the threshing floor, but that's how it all unfolded. You ever wish you could know the future? You know, suppose I offered you an envelope with the next 10 years of your life described in detail. It includes the good, includes the bad, the victories, the defeats, the happy, the sad. Let's propose that I say you can open it, but you can't change any of the contents. What would you do? I know my answer. I, I would put an, en- an envelope like that in front of me and, and I would run the other way. You know, life is hard enough living it one day at a time. For me, it would be better to take things as they come uh, because at some point we have to believe that God is at work behind the scenes in our lives. And we see that in this study. Through all the twists and turns, God has been writing Ruth's story. And through uh, God has been uh, at work, uh, and now we're here at last to the conclusion of the story. A happy ending is just around the corner. So let's see how God writes this last chapter. And we're going to, again, like we did last week, we're going to do it in three scenes. Okay? Scene one is called preparation. Verses 1 and 2. Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. Just then, the family redeemer he had mentioned came by. So Boaz called out to him, Come over here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. 
And then Boaz called 10 leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. Now, Boaz was a man of action. When he made up his mind to get something done, he didn't waste any time doing it. And that's why he went to the gate of the city and sat down. Now, don't think the gate... Uh, don't think of the gate of the city as, the, as a gate that we might uh, think of like a gate in the fence, okay? It wasn't like that at all. Every town of any size had a wall to protect its inhabitants. And a small village might have only one gate where you could enter or leave, and evidently that was the situation in ancient Bethlehem. That meant the gate was equivalent to what we would call Main Street today. The farmers, the merchants, all the visitors passed through that gate. It was the place where people went to do the town's business, to settle disputes. The elders of the town gathered near the gate because they would be called upon to act as legal witnesses. Now in this case, Boaz needs 10 men to serve as witnesses for his attempt to redeem Naomi's land and take Ruth as his wife. There's only one problem. A man who was a nearer relative to Elimelech had the first right to redeem the land. Boaz must find a way to make a legitimate offer and then have him turn it down. But for that to happen legally, he needs witnesses. So that's why he has come to the city gate. It's the place where all such transactions took place. He also knows the nearer relative will pass through that gate sooner or later. So Boaz is nothing if he's not a shrewd businessman. And when the other man uh, appears, he calls him friend. And he asks him to sit down and talk with him a while. The other man's name is lost to history. We don't have any record of who he is, although many English versions use the word friend. That's not exactly what the Hebrew says. It's an untranslatable phrase in Hebrew that means something like Mr. So-and-so. It's a nondescript word for a man whose unwillingness stands in contrast to Boaz's large heart and generous spirit. Mr. So-and-so is about to get an offer. He can definitely refuse. So here's scene two. Scene two is negotiation. uh, beginning with verse 3. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, you know Naomi who came back from Moab. She is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I am next in line to redeem it after you. The man replied, all right, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz told him, of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires you to marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. Then I can't redeem it, the family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land. I cannot do it. Now, in those days, it was the custom in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase to remove his sandal and hand it to the other party. 
This publicly validated the transaction. So the other family redeemer drew off his sandal as he said to Boaz, you buy the land. Then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, you are all witnesses to this today. I have bought to, uh, I bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. And with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. Now Boaz knew how to close a deal. First, he starts with the good news. You know Naomi, who came back from Moab. She's selling the land that belonged to our relative. And this evidently means Naomi had to sell the property to ease her poverty. As the nearest relative, possibly a brother or an uncle or a cousin to Elimelech, Mr. So-and-so has the first right of refusal. And Boaz could only redeem the land if this nearest relative refused. Now, on its face, this was a pretty good deal for Mr. So-and-so. He could pick up the land at a fair price, presumably, and add it to his own estate. And then when he died, he would pass it down to his descendants. A good deal now, a great deal later. That's why Mr. So-and-so says, all right, I'll redeem it. However, there's a catch. (laughs) There's always a catch, isn't there? That's why we should always wait until we have all the information. And it turns out that this was a packaged deal. Buy the land, and you get Ruth thrown in as a bonus. Now, based on what we know about Ruth, this was a good thing because she was a woman of high character. But it also meant that whoever bought the land had to marry her and have a child with her. Now, that begins to complicate matters, which is why the man suddenly changes his mind. Then I can't redeem it, the family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. This probably means he was already married. He already had children, which would be the natural heirs to his property. And adding Ruth and and a son to the mix would complicate everything. So in in an instant, Mr. So-and-so realizes he's got to say no to this opportunity of a lifetime. He'll be buying nothing but a future headache which he can't afford. So he says to Boaz, you redeem the land. I can't do it. I can imagine Boaz trying to hide his smile because his plan has worked to perfection. Mr. So-and-so would have to say no. Sure, there was always a chance he might say yes, but Boaz knew that what he was doing, if the man said yes and followed through, then he would be responsible to take care of Naomi and Ruth. And that's what Boaz really wanted. But in his heart, he hoped and prayed the man would say no because then he could redeem the land and marry Ruth. Now in those days, a property sale was sealed by one man giving a sandal to the other. Wouldn't it be simple if we could still be doing something like that without all the legal ramifications we have to get into for the sale of a property? Look at verse 7 and 8. So the, the other family redeemer drew off his sandal as he said to Boaz, you buy the land. Now it's like selling your home and handing over the keys to the buyer. Giving the sandal meant I'm giving up my right to walk on your property because it now belongs to you. 
With the deal done, Boaz twice says to the ten men who have watched this transaction, you are all witnesses. He intended to do everything by the book because he was an honorable man. He even makes it clear that he wants to honor the name of Ruth's dead husband, Malon, and a son, any son born to Boaz and to Ruth would be perpetuating Malon's name, not his own. Does, Mal does Boaz love Ruth? Absolutely. Has the plan worked? Definitely. Is it legal? Totally. By the way, where is Ruth in all of this? She is at home with Naomi. Neither woman knows what's happening at the city gate. She follows Naomi's advice to wait, knowing that Boaz would settle the matter one way or the other. Did she pray for him? We don't know, but I would think maybe she did. I'm sure Naomi was praying. No matter what happened at the gate, this would be Ruth's final day as a single woman. She would soon be the wife of either Boaz or Mr. So-and-so. So Boaz stands out as a man of action, a man of wisdom, a man of integrity. He doesn't wait around for something to happen. He takes the initiative and he presents the matter in a clever way and causes Mr. So-and-so to say yes and then no. He makes sure there are multiple public witnesses once the deal's done. What a good man he is. Which leads us to scene three, acclamation. If this were a modern wedding, the organ would be starting to play and people would be standing and cheering. Boaz has taken Ruth as his wife, even though she's not present. The people who watched all of this, the passers-by, the ten men, now pronounce three blessings on Boaz and Ruth. First, they ask God to make Ruth and Rachel, uh, make, Ruthel, make Ruth like Rachel and Leah. Those two women, along with their maidservants, gave birth to Jacob's sons, who became the leaders of the 12 tribes. They built the nation of Israel from the ground up through the children that they bore, Rachel and Leah. This is the prayer for children from Ruth's womb who would carry on the family name to future generations. But secondly, they're praying for, that Boaz will prosper in Bethlehem. And then the elders and all the people standing in the gate replied, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, from whom all the nation of Israel descended. May you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Now, Boaz was always uh, pretty well known in Bethlehem, but now they pray that his prosperity will increase so that his name will be even greater. And the people understood how extraordinary it was for this older Jewish man to care so deeply for this young Moabite woman who was a widow. All the odds were against it. How would they meet? How would they fall in love? But in God's providence, all of this happened according to plan. And then third, they pray for future generations to be blessed. Verse 12, and may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. Now this is perhaps the most amazing blessing of the three because it brings up an, a shameful event in Israel's history. 
If you don't know the story, go back and read it in Genesis chapter 38. Just know this, Judah, who is the son of Jacob, sleeps with a woman that he thinks is a prostitute, but it turns out it is Tamar, his daughter-in-law, who married his son, Ur, who was deceased. She does it to preserve the family line, but her means are less than noble. She was masquerading as a prostitute. And to say the least, it's unseemly and highly irregular, but from that illicit union came Perez. And from him came descendants who built up the house of Perez within the tribe of Judah. Now, all of us have things in our family history we don't like to talk about. Maybe you don't. I think most of us probably do. If you go back far enough, I often tell people, you'll find something embarrassing by what you find. We've all had rascals or scalawags somewhere in our family tree. Judah didn't cover himself with honor by sleeping with a woman he thought was a prostitute. But in Ruth chapter 4, we see good fruit that came from that bad seed. Some people think we should skip Genesis chapter 38 in our preaching because it's, it's rather untidy. But God has a way of redeeming our untidiness. And in this case, God uses a Moabite widow who marries a Jewish man, and together they will have a son that will become part of David's family tree. And a thousand years later, Jesus will be born. And he will come from Abraham and David by way of Perez and Boaz and Ruth. Now think about this. God uses the unlikeliest people in the unlikeliest ways to fulfill his promises. So, what should we learn from this story? From Boaz, we learn about the importance of integrity in all things. Just as Boaz refused to take advantage of Ruth there at the threshing floor, we talked about that last week, he also refuses to take advantage of this unnamed relative. Mr. So-and-so was given the first choice. If he redeems the land and marries Ruth, so be it. Better to live with disappointment than a guilty conscience. He follows the letter of the law by accepting the sandal from the nearer relative, and twice he informs the ten men that they are witnesses. And there's nothing hidden because there's nothing to hide. He's a man of unquestioned integrity. From Ruth, we learn the importance of waiting on God. Having met Boaz at midnight and having asked him to marry her, for that is certainly what she intended, she has done all that she can do. And Naomi's advice was to just sit tight, and that turned out to be the course of wisdom. She doesn't appear at the gate because she's not needed there. Only Boaz, as one of the family redeemers, could be there, and she has no place in this part of the unfolding plan. But here's the lesson for us. When we have done all that we can do, we don't need to feel guilty because we can't do more. At some point, we must leave room for God. Try as we might, we can't orchestrate all the affairs of our life. It's wise to do what we can do and wait for the Lord to take care of the rest. Waiting time is not wasted time. 
if we're waiting on the Lord. In this case, in this case Ruth won't have to wait much longer. And when we follow God's plan, we should expect God's blessing. Everything about this story seems unlikely, yet it was part of God's plan from the very beginning. No one could have scripted it but God. If you roll back the clock to the famine in the land, Elimelech's decision to go to Moab seems questionable at best. And yet God used it to bring Ruth and Naomi together. And when Ruth said, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your God will be my God. She had no inkling of what was to come. The future was as much a mystery to her as it, is, as it was to anyone. God, uh, Ruth didn't inspire, uh, conspire to live with Naomi so that she could meet Boaz years later. She committed herself to Naomi's God and took the next step of faith. And those steps led to Bethlehem, and they led to the field of Boaz, and later they would lead to the threshing floor, and soon they would be leading uh, her to a wedding and to childbirth. Generations will come and go, and the road will lead to David, and then finally to Jesus. And that part of the story was hidden from Ruth. Faith means taking the next step with God and leaving the results with him. Faith means taking the next step with God and leaving the results with him. We won't live long enough to see the outcome of our faith. We all hope to see our children grow up, and if we are fortunate, we may see our grandkids grow up, but we may not live long enough to see our great-grandchildren grow up. But you know, it doesn't really matter. And this was a blessing as I studied this story. I never really thought about this, uh, but Psalm 100 verse 5 says, God's mercies endure to all generations. It means God's mercy goes from one generation to another generation, to another generation. Suppose we line up a grandfather, a father, a son, a grandson, and a great-grandson next to each other. What God is to the grandfather, he will be to the father. And what he is to the father, he will be to the son. And what he is to the son, he will be to the grandson. And so it goes across the centuries. Generations come and go after, uh, one after another, but only God remains forever. I'm 68 years old, headed to, I don't know, 70, 69, 75, 80, I don't know, maybe 85 or 90 if God blesses me with a long life, but I won't live forever. And as the years roll by, I find myself realizing how much of my life is wrapped up in my children and my grandchildren. Now, will God take care of them? Will he be there when they need him? And the answer is yes. Because God's faithfulness doesn't depend on me. It depends on God's character, which spans the generations. After I'm gone, and even if all my prayers have not been answered, I can trust God to take care of my children and my grandchildren. And that's a comfort to me. I can do my best to help while I'm here, but after I'm gone, God's faithfulness will continue for my great-grandchildren yet to come. As we near the end of Ruth's story, our eyes focus on the God behind the scenes. 
This story stretches over stretches on over the horizon, reminding us that only God sees the big picture, while we kind of tend to see life through a keyhole. And the lessons for me in this story is have faith. Do not despair if you feel like you're alone. Trust in God and take the next step with him. If your current situation seems hard, remember that you are not home yet. And God is going to write the last chapter of our lives and of this world. Thanks be to God. Pray. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how blessed we are to have your word, which reminds us in so many ways what a faithful God you are and how necessary it is to trust you in all things. So help us to examine our lives today so that we can set our own house in order. For we want to be in the middle of your will. Give us faith to trust you in all the next steps of our life. And remind us in our moments of discouragement that we are not home yet. And you will write the last chapter of our life. Thank you.